Tonight, a, a study that I wasn't going to do, and then in light of where we've been in Colossians, where we're going in Colossians, it's so important to get this picture. Jesus spent a vast majority of his time as he was ministering around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, huge amount of his ministry was largely in, in the region of Capernaum, Magdala, the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. But there were a couple of times that we find that Jesus kind of went on a little bit of a, a walkabout if, there, if he was, you know, in Australia. He, he decided to, to move by the Holy Spirit. And one of those trips took him to Tyre and Sidon, which would be uh, on the coast of modern-day Lebanon. And as he transited, he came back around and he traveled to the Decapolis, which was a city of just 10 cities that was a part of the Roman Tetrarchy at the time. And so there were 10 principal cities within that, and he spent some time there. But it was during this time that Jesus asked a couple of monumentally important questions. And we're going to get to that monumental question in a moment. But as you think about Jesus, there are several things that are essential. And in his ministry, one of the things that he was doing as he was performing miracles, as he was healing those who were sick, as he was touching blind and giving them sight, as he was raising, you know, the, the widow's son, as he uh, raised up Lazarus from the dead, those things that he did, he did chiefly to give testimony to the fact that he was God, that he could do what no one else could do. But in spite of all of that, you may have remembered when we were in Luke 16, and one of the things that was said there about Lazarus is he had descended to Abraham's bosom. And here you have this rich man that's saying, look, you know, why don't you send him over here and he can preach? And then that wasn't going to work. So he says, well, why don't you send him to my family? The comment that was made there was if they didn't get it, they didn't get it. We believe by faith. We don't simply believe because of overwhelming evidence. Very often people get into discussions about creation, science, and all kinds of things, which are wonderful, by the way. I'm not dismissing any of that. But people don't come to faith in Christ because of an understanding of creation science. They come to faith in Christ because they've believed the gospel. They've believed that Jesus Christ is God's only son. And that's the picture that's there in Luke chapter 9. So if you'd turn there, I want to pray and ask God to just minister to us. Very important, really a companion study to this morning's message. Father, we thank you for the amazing power of your word. And Lord, uh, all of these authors, 40 of them, all these books, 66 of them, a time span of 1,500 years that your word was compiled and written. And yet, Lord, this incredible singular message that you, Jesus, are God incarnate in human flesh. You're the Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would impress upon us the power of your word, that we would have an answer. When people ask us, who do we say Jesus is? That we would know how to answer. 
And so bless the study of your word tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 18 here in Luke 9. We're going to take all the way through verse 36 as we take a little journey with Jesus north of the Sea of Galilee. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and he asked them saying, now notice this, there's going to be two questions in, in just a couple of verses here. Who do the crowds say that I am? And this is super important that you get the differentiation between these two questions. Who do the crowds, who do the people say that I am? People who don't necessarily spend a lot of time with me. People who aren't, you could almost say people who aren't church people. People who haven't been around a lot. Who do the people, as we're traveling, my disciples, who do the people say that I am? And so they answered, and we're not sure who's answering for the multitude, but you notice that it is they, and maybe they kind of went around the circle. Who knows? You know, maybe it was John and Andrew and Matthew. They all kind of spoke up, and each one of them took uh, someone that they could, that they could say. And, and this passage is found in three of the Gospels, and so uh, it's also found in Mark and Matthew's Gospel, an almost identical same recounting of the story. And so, so they answered and said, John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. And others say that one of the old prophets that's risen again. And so you can see the varied answers that are given here. And it's marvelously important because these are the answers that the world's religions still offer up today. If, if you ask a Muslim... Jesus is one of the prophets. If you ask the Jewish people, well, maybe he was related to Elijah. Some people believe he's a mystical figure come back from the dead like John the Baptist. And you remember, that actually was what Herod believed. But he said to them, that's really not the question. The question is, because this is the question that every last one of us have to answer for ourselves. You see, there can be a corporate understanding. There can be a world's understanding. There can be a religious understanding. There can be an understanding that comes from a specific group of people. There can be some understanding of who Jesus is. But notice this. Jesus speaks to them and he says, but who do you say that I am? So on one hand, what does the world think? On the other hand, what do you think? What's your answer to that question? When you talk to people about Jesus and you're sharing the gospel with them, the decision is not a corporate one. It's a personal one. And on one level, it really doesn't matter what the world thinks about who Jesus is. On another, it influences the way they, that people do perceive who Jesus is. And that's the fight we have. Because we're attempting at times to overcome the picture that the world has painted of Jesus. But the real question is, who do you say that Jesus is? Notice Peter's response. And now we know that this is Peter. And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. 
the Christus, Messiah, the anointed one, the one about whom the prophets wrote, the one that was prophesied who would come. And so he makes a profession of faith. You see, that is the question every person will one day answer because every knee will bow. The question is, will you bow while you're still here or will you bow after you find out the truth because you refuse to believe that truth while you're here? Every knee will bow. It won't matter whether you're, you've been here, whether you're in heaven, or whether you're actually already in Sheol. One day, every single living, breathing human being that's ever set foot on this planet, along with all of the angels, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, will all acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the question is, will you come to that reality while you still have breath? Peter answers in the affirmative. And then it's interesting how Jesus handles this because he's not yet ready for that information to be out in that way. And I think he does so to protect what's going to be happening over the next several weeks as Jesus approaches Jerusalem. And he strictly warned and commanded them not to tell this to anyone or to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things. In other words, what Jesus is doing is actually protecting the disciples. Because, Peter, you're right. I am the Christ. He receives that proclamation. But don't tell anybody. Because if you do, you'll undoubtedly mess things up. And so he says to them, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. So he lays out exactly what's going to happen. He tells them straight up to their face. No hem hawing, no ifs, ands, or buts. Here's what's going to go down. The Son of Man... That would be me, Jesus is saying, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and raised on the third day. Now understand, this is said before the Garden of Gethsemane. This is said before the little campfire scene where Peter's around there and denies Christ three times, once to a little servant girl, I don't know the man. Peter knew. Peter made a profession of faith. You remember what Jesus prayed for, for the disciples? He didn't pray that they'd be delivered from the trials, but he prayed for more faith for them, right? Because that's the issue. The issue is, where does your personal faith take you? Where does everyone's personal faith take them? Because you can't save your kids. You can't save your mom and dad. They have to make the same profession Peter made. Thou art the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And he said to them, and then he goes on and gives them three criteria here. He said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He's making this incredible picture. He's got, look, I am going to suffer and die. And, and you have to wonder, what are they thinking? 
because they act as if they really didn't hear this or they didn't believe it. It's like, okay, okay, yeah, but that's not what we want, so we're going to have our reality be the reality. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Notice that Jesus has his own glory because he's a singular part of the triune God. Father's glory, the Son's glory, the glory of the Holy Spirit working in the world. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed, it says. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is speaking to, to these, the disciples. They're gathered together, and we find out from Matthew 17 where this is. Because he's no longer in his, basically his hometown of Capernaum. He's not at the Sea of Galilee. He is much further north. And as he begins this journey he's going to travel around and Matthew 17 says it this way in verse 13 and now when Jesus had come into the district of Caesarea Philippi and he was talking to his disciples notice the same question it's the same passage notice that it's exactly the same context who do the people say that the son of man is and they said some say John the Baptist others Elijah still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets Context is the same. A few interjected names. So we're told where they're at. He's in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus has made this journey around the the region of the northern part of what is modern-day Israel. He's been into what would be modern-day southern Lebanon. He's journeyed into parts of of western Syria. And so he's, he's up in the north. And he would have gone to the ten cities of the Decapolis. One of those uh, we just visited, Beth Shean. Uh, in Israel, in this large Roman city, and Jesus would have gone there. This, by the way, is a city where uh, Saul was just hung from the city walls in, in Bethshean. So here Jesus is wandering around the region. So he's traveled far and wide. So as he says these things, this is not the narrow little group of people that listened to him deliver the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount was not the people that watched him do the miracles in Cana and all those little regions that are right on the shore, the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's been wandering all over the place. And so he asked the bigger question. He travels to the north, and Matthew's gospel tells us that he travels to Caesarea Philippi. Now, this little tiny settlement, it, it had a number of names. It's Panias or Banias. It's on the headwaters of the Jordan River. And as you, as you enter into what is now that region, uh, there's not a whole lot of the remains of the city of Caesarea Philippi. It was an interesting thing because it was uh, one of the headquarters of one of the tetrarchs or the rule of four. So there were four rulers. Uh, they were all within the Herod family. And, and so you had Herod Antipas. You have Herod uh, Philip, who was also Herod. And, and so you have these brothers, half-brothers, Archelaus, who all kind of have their own cities. And Philip 
had this little tiny city that was headquartered on the headwaters of the Jordan River. And if you travel there, there's a very large cave. The Greeks used it as, a, as an altar to the Greek god Pan. And at that time, the actual, if you go there today, the, the river no longer comes out of the cave, but it used to be uh, that the headwaters of the Jordan did come out of that cave, and it was believed that if you made an offering to Pan and you threw that offering in, if the offering went into the cave, then Pan had heard your cry, and if it spit it out, you were just in trouble. And so there was a a very large cult following there. And so it makes a lot of sense that uh, one of the Herods would set up his capital there, capital in the north. And and so if you travel there today, you can go to this beautiful idyllic garden. Uh, You'll you'll see actually the main tributary, uh, the Dan River flows out of there. And uh, it's also the, the headwaters of the Jordan River. But most of that comes right out of the ground. So what you're seeing in that photograph as you're looking at it, that water a hundred feet out of that photo does not exist above ground. It literally just springs up. And so this would have been where Jesus is at. He's at the city. He's in Caesarea Philippi. He's someplace in that region. Uh, he's in the Tetrarchy of Philip. Now remember, Philip's not a really, uh, he's, the whole family's kind of messed up. You may have remembered that he actually ends up being, he marries Philip, marries Salome. And Salome is, the, is the, the young girl who's the daughter of Herodias who dances before Herod and eventually has John the Baptist beheaded. And so this is one messed up family. And so Jesus has now gone to the northern, northern regions, kind of the, the northern extent of the Roman rule of that particular area. And so he's talking with the guys. He's hanging out with them. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is down fairly low. Uh, it's just 11, 1,200 feet. And so we find that Jesus is up on the mountain. Where is he at? Oh, we know where he is. And, and so it's pretty interesting, the geography there, because Mount Hermon, as you see it today, it's snow-capped during the winter. It's actually the Israelis have a ski resort on the north side of it. But it's actually the border of Lebanon, Syria, and Israel at that point. And so it is a high mountain. It's over 9,000 feet tall. And so it is there that they're, I believe, they're in this region. And ultimately, they go up to a high mountain. And what we find is Jesus um, beginning with these guys just to to talk about some of these things. And he's getting a, a, a more global ministry going. He's sharing all these things. So you can imagine that he tells the disciples at this point, I don't want you getting all this stuff out there. I'm doing a little test case right now. Who do you say that I am? But the real question is, for everybody, who do they say I am? Peter, you've got it right. So let's see how the world responds to that. You see, as the river begins to flow, and they would have been in the ruins of Caesarea Philippi, they, they, they would have been wandering around this very Roman area. And at the same time, Jesus, in essence, from a lot of people's perspective, is talking insurrection. As far as they're concerned, you're the Christ. You're, okay, we know what the Messiah is going to He's going to come wipe out Rome. Well, they're in the Roman capital city. And the Herods were famous for building all kinds of things, like the fortress at Masada. So when you travel with us and you go to 
to Israel and you step up on that mountain fortress, probably Herod was in that fortress while Philip was in Caesarea Philippi in the north. And you, you would have had this family that's tremendously powerful. And Jesus is basically throwing stones. He's saying, look, who do you say that I am? Well, Herod's saying, I, you know, I think he's reincarnated John the Baptist. I, I think John the Baptist come back to life. Peter's got it right. The world gets it wrong. And so when you think about the, sitting, the setting, it's very similar to our world today. People have all kinds of opinions about who Jesus is. The Herods would have had one. Your basic Roman would have had another. The centurion from Caesarea Maritima would have had another. Cornelius would have had another. All the, they, they would have all had all kinds of varying things that they would have been saying about the Lord Jesus. And I think it's, it's marvelously intriguing for us to think about the power structure of the world and how people respond to this question today. And so Herod, probably in his fortress at Masada, Philip's in his hometown, Caesarea Philippi, about 35 miles to the north or so. And so we find Jesus in this context in prayer. This is the fourth of seven occasions when Jesus is in prayer. And Luke begins to show kind of how the Lord's affairs are all pointing towards Jerusalem. His mission is coming uh, to a close. And so Jesus now is, is praying and, and the Lord turns her attention kind of to the person of who Jesus is. There are several things you can get from this passage, and I think as we think on them, it's important that the answer from Peter was immediate. He says, look, you're the Christ. I know exactly who you are. There are some people that you will talk to, that's going to be the immediate answer. It's always interesting when when you deliver the gospel message and you call for a response. Some people are like, I need to get saved right now. Uh, what, absolutely, Holy Spirit just convicted me of that truth. How do I get to know Jesus? He's the Christ. I believe that. And there's other people who are kind of, they're doubters. It's like, well, you know, I'm not sure. There's no scientific evidence for God that we can, you know, really talk about that's empirical. And so when, when you show me scientific evidence for God, well, give me God's fingerprint or something and I'll, I'll believe. You have those kind of people. You have the political people who will use whoever Jesus is to their advantage like Donald Trump. That's what he does. He mentions God whenever it's politically expedient. But if you look at his life, there's no evidence whatsoever that he actually has a genuine relationship with the Lord. I'm not saying he's not saved. I'm saying I haven't seen a single thing from him that indicates that he's a man who follows hard after God. That's what I'm saying. So you have people who use it for political expedience. But the question remains deeply personal because how you answer that question determines where you spend eternity. And there are only two answers. He's either the Christ and the Son of the living God or anything else which leaves him less than Christ and the Son of the living God. People that heard Jesus speak 
People remarked that he spoke with the authority like nobody they'd ever heard. They saw his miracles. Those things were countless. They were incontrovertible. And Jesus had done enough of them that by word of mouth, that, that mileage up to Caesarea Philippi would have not mattered. They heard. And now he's with them. How could they explain this extraordinary man? Was he really John the Baptist come back from the dead? Was he some apparition? You know, was he some kind of mystical guy that just appeared every once in a while? No doubt there were all kinds of answers to that question. And I believe that Peter had probably pondered in his heart a very long time before he actually answered this. Because you know who else was in this crowd? Judas. He was one of the 12. He was still with them. And we know that the same evidence presented to Judas gave a completely different result. That's the power of personal choice. That's the power of your decision, my decision, our decision individually, everyone's decision about who Jesus is. But the truth had taken root. And just as as Jesus had already said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, you can almost see, you're the Christ. It's like he couldn't wait to spit it out because it's truly what he believed. That's why I see when people tell me that they're believers and there's no evidence in their life. In other words, they never speak the name of Jesus. They never pray. They never go to church. They never read. They don't even own a Bible, but they identify, self-identify, we call it self-identification as a Christian. I have to wonder, is that someone who really believes that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? Or is that somebody who knows about Jesus? And to me, that's a scary thing because there are a lot of people who know enough about Jesus to actually make the right decision, but they will not allow themselves to believe by faith because the element of faith must remain for that confession to be true. And Peter, I'm sure, pondered that question. It's amazing to me. Look how passionate he is. You, you, you can see it in verse 22. The Son of Man, he said, must suffer these things and be rejected of the elders. The chief priest describes and be slain and be raised on the third day. Not in their wildest imagination were they expecting that after thou art the Christ. They were probably expecting, well, when you set up your kingdom, can one of us sit on the right and the other on the left? That's where they were actually thinking. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is like, you're going to suffer and hunt and what? And you see, because believing in Christ doesn't fix all the world's problems. It fixes your eternity. Believing in Christ doesn't necessarily end all of your physical ailments that may not make you wealthy or might not get a new car and you have you all those things may may or may not happen to you but it will fix where you'll spend eternity and that's the thing that matters all that other stuff just like the disciples were probably thinking it's like you're gonna suffer and die and no, we're, no, we're not up for that but the lord was passionate about his purpose and I think that they're probably all thinking, well, you're, you're going to wipe out the Romans, right? You're going to take care of these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these guys have been dogging you. You're going to really give them a slap down, right? You're going to tell them how it is. 
And Jesus is saying, no, that's not exactly what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer and die. And they're probably thinking, you know, what are those petty little guys in the Sanhedrin going to do? Are they going to stop you from taking over all the seats? And that's not going to happen. And yet Jesus is actually saying to him, look, this is incredible. It's impossible. It's inconceivable. You're going to die. You're going to be, no way. We're not letting that happen. That is why Peter responded in the garden the way he did. He's still thinking with a carnal mind about something that's spiritual. And the carnal mind cannot know the things of God. And so what is Peter doing in the garden? He's going, well, you know you said it, but mm, I'm, no, that's still not happening. I'm cutting off Malchus's ear right now. Jesus, you've taken this whole dying thing too seriously. I'm going to help you out. Now, you have a little secret in your life, in your walk with the Lord. Do not try and help God out. He does not need your help. He's per- perfectly capable of managing the universe without you. You just ask him what it is that you're supposed to do and then do that. And so when he says, put down the sword, you put down the sword. Luke gives us the Lord's perspective on this. And he says, if any man will come after me and deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, he said, they're thinking, well, we're going to sit on 12 thrones and we're going to judge the nations. And, you know, they're going to be like senators. You know, we don't know what they're actually thinking. But you can almost get from the way they're responding to these things. They had a whole different thing in mind. Can I tell you there's a lot of people that have a whole different thing in mind when they think about what's going to happen when they give their life to Jesus? And in fact, many people looking for the wrong thing because they're not believing by faith. They're just believing some ridiculous story that some health, wealth, and prosperity preacher preached to them. Well, you know, God wants you to have a million bucks. And so you plant a seed gift and God's going to give you right back all that money and 10 times that. And then it doesn't happen. You know what happens? Their faith gets stolen away. Whatever little faith they had, they're not only no longer walking with Jesus, they hate anything to do with Jesus. You have to come to Christ on his terms, on God's terms, and you have to pick up your cross and you must follow him. And it may not be the way you think it should be. God may allow stuff into your life that when you think about it, looking back on it, you're going to go, man, I don't know why he did that, but you know what's going to happen? When you get to heaven, you're going to go, he was right, I was wrong. He knew what he was doing. You see, ultimately, not only would it be a cross for Jesus, it would be a cross for them as well. It wasn't just going to be Jesus dying. They were going to have to pick up their cross. And ultimately, they would lose their lives for the same cause that Christ lost his. He saw a world invaded by Satan and its host and was waging war where it mattered. That's what Jesus saw. Peter saw a world that was fleshly and carnal, and he was going to wage that war with the arm of flesh. And Scripture is correct. The arm of flesh cannot sustain you. Well, it'll hold you up for a while. You can balance until your arms get really tired, and then you're going to fall over like all arms of flesh throughout time. You see, eventually the Lord would triumph over Satan's principalities and powers. Can you imagine? We're not told what Satan thought when Jesus said to tell us, die, it's finished. But I guarantee it wasn't good. It was like, I am 
sunk. You see, the cross, though from a human perspective, you can, you can almost imagine the disciples shaking their heads as they walked away. And in the Gospels, when, we're, when we read the passages that show the crucifixion of the Lord, you can almost taste the depression in the disciples. I was like, I can't believe it. You can see it in the response the first morning at the tomb, right? It's the ladies who are going to look and see. Peter and John come in a foot race afterwards. They they basically don't believe. They've got to be convinced to even go look. Whosoever shall lose it will save it. What is a man advantage if he gains the whole world and lose himself? You see, that was the initial question. Though Jesus didn't tell them that at first, he said, that's the question you're actually answering. Who am I? And in essence, we're given a glimpse into God's balance sheet. We see how God views things. Someone has well said, and I don't know who said it, but the first question we have to answer really in our relationship with the Lord is heaven or hell. That's the first question you have to answer. And the second one is heaven or earth. Do you want heaven? Do you want hell? Do you want heaven or do you want earth? Do you want what you can have here? Do you want what you can have there? That's the question. The answer should be two times heaven. It it shouldn't be, well, I'll take my chances. Maybe there's no hell. It should be heaven, heaven. Not, well, earth is pretty awesome. At times there are things that are wonderful about being here on this planet. You have children, watching your children grow up and mature and seeing what God does in their lives and get married and, you know, maybe grandbabies, one of these, you know, that's like awesome. But compared to heaven, not so much. So the answer is heaven and heaven. Can you imagine the face of Judas? Can you imagine the face of Judas in this exchange? We're not told at what point his discipleship switched sides from heaven to hell. We don't know exactly when he turned that corner. But I'm wondering if it wasn't here. We often associate it with all of the things that happened within the day or so that Jesus was crucified. But I'm wondering if it wasn't right here. He hears those words, well, you've got to give up your life. The Son of Man is, is, is going to lose his life. He's going to be killed. And he's going to be, I, I'm not sure I'm up for that. You know, I've got to believe, so, that's supernatural. I've got to believe something supernatural. Can't explain it. He hadn't signed up for those kind of things. The Lord's revealing something, and he's like, I no. Family of God, that's the question for each of us. Is there anything that you will trade for Jesus? You see, because the, the, there's an answer to that question. If there's anything you'll trade for Jesus, then you have to rethink it. You have to say, why? Wow, that, that can't be there. Judas chose power 
and money, authority over eternity. Matter of fact, he chose the price of a female slave, not even a male slave, a female slave, which unfortunately at that time had less value than a male slave because a man could do more work. So you got more money for him. Judas was in grave peril. He was about to sell out to this world. How many people do you know tonight that are in grave peril that are about to sell out to this world? But at what cost? At what cost? What profits it a man, a woman, anybody, to gain everything this world has to offer and loses his soul. Private jet's not getting you into heaven. A mansion or a dozen of them will not get you into heaven. All the gold and silver on this earth doesn't belong to whoever bank account it's in. It belongs to God anyway. That's what his word says, the gold and silver in every mind, the sheep, the cattle, and a thousand hills, the earth and the fullness of it is the Lord's. And so people think, well, hey, it's a good trade. So I'll take 70, 80, 90, 100 years of the very best things that this world can offer, and I'll trade my soul for that. You see, we need to be bold enough to say, that that way are you willing to bet your eternity on it are you willing to gamble with eternity for anything you see i don't think judas looked at it that way that's why if you only have that one birth you're going to face two deaths we just looked at that did we not if you're with us on thursday night There's a second death. There's a death that comes after the physical one for those who don't know the Lord. And it is infinitely worse than physical dying because it's spiritual dying. It's separation from God. Where Jesus himself said, it is where you will burn with fire for all eternity and you will be consumed by maggots and yet not die. Now, I don't know about you, but that's about as frightening as any possible outcome for humanity gets. To, to want to die and not be able to die. So Jesus wasn't playing as he's talking to these guys. But he made them a great promise. He said, I tell you the truth, there are some standing here which shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. You see, as the disciples were standing there, some of them were going to see it's finished. Father, into thy hands I I commend my spirit. Some of them were going to see the the coming of the kingdom because Jesus made it a reality. We haven't received the fullness of it, but it was a reality when he said, it's finished, it's done. Price is paid. Father God looks on from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
And then he demonstrates his deity as this passage draws on to a close. And now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings. And just so you know, there's, there's a common thing that people find. See, this is one of the contradictions. Because Matthew and Luke don't agree. One says eight, one says six. Just the same way that you count the two days on both ends of things, so they did in those days. And so if you say six, and you're talking about the days in between, you don't include the days on either end. You can have six or eight. They're both correct. So don't lose your mind over those two numbers. And it came to pass in about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter and John and James, went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered. And his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decrease about which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. But Peter, uh, you, you, you have to love these guys. But Peter and those with him were heavy asleep. Jesus has just told them about the the coming kingdom. They've taken a little hike. They're, They're likely up on Mount Hermon. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with them, and they got this incredible idea. And then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you. Now notice this. Peter is equating Jesus, thou art the Christ, with Moses, who's now been dead for the better part of 1,500 years, and one for Elijah, also translated into heaven. He's not there. And he says, well, you guys are all the same. So he's actually agreeing with some of the people about whom he said, well, some of them think you're a prophet. So in eight days, he goes from thou art the Christ to, well, mm, I'm not really sure. Because we're going to build a tabernacle, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you, Jesus, because you're one of the, the good guys. Be careful to leave Jesus God. And I love what Scripture records, not knowing what he said. That's a fine way of saying Peter was loopy. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful, and they entered into the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, hear him. And then the voice ceased, and Jesus was found alone, and they kept quiet. And in those days, they told no one of the things that they had seen. And so this incredible picture, we call it the transfiguration. I I do believe that it was likely uh, up on the top of Mount Hermon. People argue over these things, and and quite frankly, it doesn't really matter. But geographically, if they're up by Caesarea Philippi, the only other spot that kind of fits it might have been Mount Tabor, but it's further in the south. I just simply think that it makes more sense that it was up on the twin peaks of Mount Hermon. And so here Jesus is on this high mountain, and and God out out of this cloud speaks to them jesus is glistening and peter's still stuck in the flesh and i think it's just a it's an interesting concept for us to remember that you can be in the presence of the glory of the lord and still end up in the flesh if you're not careful 
You can come to God's house, you can hear God's word, you can be moved of the spirit, and you can walk straight away and forget what manner of person you are. That's possible. That's why it's so important for us to stay focused on, on the Lord and not on great worship teams or, you know, pastors whom you, you, know, you enjoy listening to or, or technology or your iPhone. or you, you need to stay focused on Jesus. He's God. Church is not God. Calvary Chapel is not God. What we do as far as a worship service, not God. We hope it honors the Lord. We pray it does so. We pray as we study his word that is giving honor to what he has drafted, that he put forth as truth. But as you think of these things, these guys manage to miss it. And yet Jesus is altered before them. And, and he used the word, word heteros there. So it's, he's altered, but he's in the same state and yet a different type of the same thing. In other words, he's absolutely still who he was, but he's an altered state of who he was. He's a glorified state of who he is. And so all of a sudden he's shining with the, with the glory of God, the Shekinah. There's been, a, in essence, a genetic alteration, if you will, and yet he's still Jesus. Matthew tells us his face shone as the sun. Can you imagine that meeting? Can you imagine that meeting? That's what we want to have happen in our lives. We want to meet Jesus. We want to see Jesus. We want to be looking unto Jesus. You know, it was great that they saw Moses Now, bear in mind, Jesus has not yet died and been raised. So where do you think Moses came from? He came from Abraham's bosom. He's down with Abraham and all the rest of the saints. And can you imagine Moses' surprise when he's like on Mount Hermon with Jesus and Elijah? It's like, how did we get here? Because you remember what happened to Elijah. You have one that came up from the grave. You had one that came down from heaven. Elijah was translated. He was taken up. Moses died. Actually, Moses kind of got the slap down, didn't he? He says, look, you, 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 you misrepresented me, so you're not going to get to enter the promise. So he died a normal death. His bones were buried. He was buried up on Mount Nebo. The angels of the Lord actually guarded him. And so here comes Moses out of the, out of the grave, out of Sheol. And Elijah comes down from heaven. They have this little meeting with Jesus. And yet Peter didn't get the fullness of it. Don't have a meeting with Jesus and set yourself up to not get the fullness of it. Let God be God. When you're meeting with God, leave the door open for God to boggle your mind, to speak to you things that you do not know, for you to get exactly what the Lord wants from every single time that you you sit down with Jesus. The truth of it was, no matter what was going to happen, Jesus was still in charge. Amen? He, he, he was still fully God. And though he was heading to Jerusalem to give his life a ransom for many, to die the, the most heinous of deaths, to give his life on Calvary's cross, to shed his blood, he was still fully in charge. The Jewish people were not simply so crafty as to carry out a plan. It wasn't Annas and Caiaphas. It was not the Roman rule. It was not Pilate. 
Jesus went to Jerusalem. He set his face like flint. And when he saw Jerusalem, that Palm Sunday, he said, I'm going there because this is what I came here for. So the question still remains for you, for me, for us, for all people. Who do you say Jesus is? For me, just like Peter, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm not going to be able to explain everything that he does. I'm not going to be able to know all of the workings of God, for there are, his ways are above my ways. So much so that ultimately there are going to be things that I cannot know. And I'm good with that. And part of my life, I'm going to have answers that are simply going to be, I have faith. And people are going to mock you for that. Can I tell you that? People are going to mock you. When you say, I just have faith, they're going to go, well, you're just crazy. You're going to say, okay, who's the crazy one? You're betting your eternity that I'm wrong. You tell me who's crazy. I'm out of my mind for the sake of Christ, just like Paul. That one I'll own. But he's done enough for me to say, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus Christ is God. Incarnate. Human flesh. He is, was, will always be Emmanuel, God with his people. He came, he died, gave his life for us so that we might be free. And that's why we worship him. The whole group should have been going, you're the Christ. When they went on the mountain, you're the Christ. Moses, Elijah, love you guys, but he's the Christ. You're a prophet. You're a prophet. You wrote prophetic books. You wrote the first fight. You wrote the Pentateuch. Love you for that, but he's the Christ. Leave Jesus. Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you that Jesus, you are Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the one of one. You're the, the story of the book of Colossians, the preeminent one over all creation. There is none like you. There's none other. You're not one of many. You're the firstborn. And Lord, we thank you for that and pray that we'd never make you less than God, that you wouldn't almost be like God. You are God, and we declare that. We thank you for that truth, Lord, that you're nothing less than Savior. You're nothing less than Lord. You're nothing less than the King of Kings. You're nothing less than the great I Am. You're nothing less than the lion of the tribe of Judah. You're nothing less than Christ. We thank you. We praise you. And we put our trust in you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Help us to answer that question with our lives. Would, would we tell the world that you're the Christ. You're the only one, the only Savior, the only Lord. And it is you alone that we believe. 
Thank you. We bless you. We ask all this in the wonderful name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen.